this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to have Dana Joya back on Church and Culture today. He's been on the show a number of times. I'm always glad to have him. You may recall he's a poet, he's a essayist, he's an anthologist, and a very, very important Catholic artist, and someone who writes about Christianity, Catholicism, and the arts. He is the former poet laureate of California. Dana, welcome back. Feel good to talk to you. This new article that you wrote for First Things, Christianity and Poetry, I think it's one of the best essays you've ever written. Well, you know, it's an essay that, you know, probably took me a lifetime to, to write, in that, you know, I, I had to live with things and see things uh, to be able to, uh, to offer the perspective that I did. And so I was, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, pleased to to have this thing sort of emerge uh, almost by accident. Well, it, it emerged out of disposition. I mean, it, it, it emerged out of what Jacques Maritain would call knowledge by inclination. This is something that's been building up in your entire being, well, yes, I, your whole life. Um, a, a, an email from someone I, I have had never met, indeed I still have never met, uh, a fellow I think perhaps uh, you know, Edward Short. Yes, I do. Who uh, said he was uh, editing an anthology of, you know, a comprehensive historical anthology of Christian poetry, and he asked me if I would write a preface. And I thought about it, and I said, well, that would be, I think I'd like to do that. I assumed it would be a relatively short preface, you know, saying a few things clearly and letting the book, you know, get on its way. But then I was invited to give a talk to the opening of a library at the Norbertine Abbey uh, in Silverado, California. And I'd, I'd met a few of these Norbertine um, Priests, I guess. I'm not sure if they're if, if they're called friars or priests, but I'm pretty sure that they're priests. Uh, and uh, they uh, had originated in Hungary, I believe, at the end of the 13th century. And uh, five or six of them had fled Hungary in 1950 when the communist government um, seized the churches and more or less, you know, outlawed. Uh, Catholicism, and they somehow ended up in the desert of California, where they have gradually built this absolutely beautiful monastery, which now has a new library. And so I gave a talk about poetry in the context of the sort of continuity that this library provided, because uh, Roberta Amundsen, who had donated the library, also bought the papers of two notable patristic scholars in England. And so the, the who, library who were became stocked with you know, centuries of books. Mm-hmm. Who, who and, were the scholars? Um, oh, if, 
recognize the names, but they're, they're avo- uh, you know, eluding me right now. Okay. Um, and, you know, but they, you know, it, it looks like a, a, a modern library with an ancient monastery's library in it. And I began to talk about it, and in the process of writing this talk, suddenly I noticed some things that I'd never uh, recognized before. And indeed, in one case, I don't think anybody has ever made the precise connection I did. Uh, It's probably a a perspective that will only be uh, exciting to Catholics, but if you're trying to say, when does Christian poetry begin, you know, it's, is it first century, second century, you know, et cetera. Well, it's very clear from the Gospels that Christian poetry began at the very moment that Christ's incarnation was uh, shared with the world, which is to say, during the visitation, when Mary, you know, visits her sister and recites the Magnificat. And, and that struck me as interesting, which is to say that uh, the origins of Hebrew poetry, you know, go back into the ancient history of the Jews. But here, Luke uh, precisely places the first Christian poem at the first moment where, in this case, uh, Mary, uh, uh, you know, speaks the fact that the Messiah has come. Which is to say, uh, through by implication, Luke and Mary are saying that if you want to describe the glory of the incarnation, of the Messiah, of the redemption, you need poetry, not prose. And it's quite interesting that you see, uh, you know, you know, especially in Luke, you see this uh, at the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and you see it being something that, you know, appears in the the epistles, because even though the New Testament does not have any books that are entirely poetic, like the Psalms or Lamentations or Job, the notion of poetic speech is woven into um, New Testament scripture. And I thought that was interesting. Uh, and I thought it was, I mean, if I can use the big a big word, revelatory. And uh, it explains, I think, you know, why, first of all, there is so much poetry in the Bible, and secondly, why it makes the more prosaic contemporary people uncomfortable. And if you see these very bad translations of, of the Bible, they try to take the poetry and, and flatten it down into uh, everyday prose. And I think that is a serious mistranslation. It's almost as if you're getting a theological matter wrong. So I began to write about this, and I try to cover the, you know, in a summary way, the entire history of Christian poetry in English, going back to uh, into the New Testament. Dana, I want to I want to mention something. <clears throat> I have just finished reading a biography of Matthew Coverdale, who published the first complete. Bible, Old and New Testaments in 1535. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, I didn't know this, but his translation was basically what they used for the King James Version, as well as part of the Book of Common Prayer. And in the book, the author said it was Coverdale who created the English of Shakespeare. 
It could be. I mean, I, I you know, I've seen, I've not, I've not read this wonderful book you're describing, but I've seen many times where they'll put a passage from Coverdale, a passage from King James, and it, and show how you know that was clearly the basis of it, although you know it was sharpened and and in some cases really rather nicely elevated you know by this committee. I mean, the King James Bible is arguably the only good thing that's ever come out, come out of a committee. Um, <laughs> and by the way, almost, would, you read, makes, would you read? Would you read? Believe in, in it was divine intervention. Would you read the Magnificat? Passage. Um, I, I don't have the text. In, well, I do have it's my wallet. I carry it with me. I chose, I was looking through the Magnificat, and the two versions that move me the most are the Latin, you know, which is not, you know, it's available to old altar boys like you and me, but not not something that most people, you know, would do. But when I looked at the other versions, uh, the version that I really liked the best was the from the Book of Common Prayer. In 1662, it's only a matter of, of a couple of phrases that are different from, uh, you know, the more common versions. But let me read it to you. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for He hath regarded the lowliness of His handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath magnified me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all the generations. He hath showed strength with his arm, he hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the humble and meek. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and uh, hath and the rich he hath sent empty away. He, remembering his mercy, hath holpen his servant Israel, as he promised to our forefathers, Abraham and his seed forever. So, sorry I missed a word there, but I have this copy I keep in my wallet. I'm trying to memorize it. It was and probably it on the fold, but you know... A lot of the words <laughs> have been I, disintegrated. The, the, the point you make in this essay, which I want our listeners to hear and understand, and I'm sure they'll nod their head in agreement, is that poetry is more effective than abstract doctrine in uh, having us become involved personally, emotionally, heart and mind in the revelation of Jesus Christ to us. It's poetry that implants us in us, in us more deeply than any catechism. I could not agree with you more. Um, the, one of the glories of Catholicism is our theology. I mean, for 2,000 years, some of the best minds of the West have uh, devoted themselves in the, to clarify theology. But theology is not dogma uh, in its strict sense. I mean, it is, it is a commentary. Uh, the explanations of the Trinity are not the Trinity. Uh, the explanations of the dual nature of Jesus Christ are not the actual uh, mystery of these supernatural truths. They are the best uh, ways that we can approximate an explanation in human ideas. And so 
the, the reality of Catholicism, of Christianity itself, is that we uh, face these magnificent, redemptive, supernatural mysteries that exceed human explanation. And we can approach them as saying, well, here's a, an abstract account, or we can participate in them with the fullness of our humanity, largely through art. I mean, to go into the architecture of a great cathedral, you walk yes. out of the sunlight. Into, yes. I was, you know, a few years ago, I actually visited a beautiful cathedral in Cologne, the cathedral in Cologne, as the Germans call it. Famous one of St. Albert, Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, and you walk in there, immediately, physically, emotionally, mentally, you are in a different attitude towards reality. And that's the power of art. I mean, architecture is interesting to talk about because it's, you know, you can just walk someplace without thinking, and suddenly you find your your perspective transformed. And music, poetry, uh, art, architecture have this ability to make us feel the truths emotionally, physically, imaginatively, intuitively, and not just intellectually. And I think the people uh, want the theology, but I think, uh, although uh, some people don't realize it, the theology comes later. You're trying to explain to yourself, well, why do I feel this way? You know, why do I feel the presence of God? Why do I believe in, in Christ as my, as my Savior? And the theology gives you a perspective so you can kind of explain it to yourself. But it begins as an experience, as a phenomenon. And the power well, of poetry is that it's one, or it's actually several steps closer to that holistic experience. And that is why, I mean, here's the whole thing. If you don't like poetry, then you can't really be a Christian. Because one-third of, of Scripture is written uh, overtly as poetry, and a great deal of it is written in a in a more, in a more, you know, sort of a more implicitly poetic way. But you, you, you are forced to say something like, well, God didn't know what he was doing when he inspired the Bible. I mean, God was a terrible editor. And I think that's a completely ridiculous position. The real question is why does so much scripture, uh, you know, take the form of poetry? And I believe the answer is uh, is sort of obvious if you think about it. The glories of creation, the glories of redemption, uh, the mysteries of God uh, and of Christ uh, are something that exceeds the, uh, what would you call it, the meanings of prose. You know, prose tends to sort of nail everything down in a neat conceptual way. You, you know, you talk about love, well, love is an idea versus the personal love you feel, you know, for God or for or for someone else. And poetry is almost always embodied language. It make it's specific, it's it's emotional. It's well, think of the, think of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yeah, which is very different than saying I mean, that's uh, so God powerful, but you know, it would be ridiculous to uh, substitute a doctrine in the place of that psalm. Well, you know, we I think most Catholics understand that we're persecuted, uh, 
lot nowadays by, you know, especially by academic and intellectual authorities. And, you know, you can talk about this and what do we do and everything else, but then you come across a line uh, in the Magnificent God. And I'll, I'll, I'll recite a translation that just differs in one word. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the conceit of their hearts. Ah, you know, and that, that was the the one word. You know, that's in, you know, and, I, and I said you can say you can say that it was the imagination of the heart. They imagine, but conceit is stronger. To be much better, they have a conceit, and we're yeah. and we have to trust that our you know that our faith will be vindicated because God will sooner or later. Uh, show the strength of his arm by scattering the proud and the conceit of their heart. And so uh, that line affects me really deeply, um, you know, because it, it gives me, an, you know, it gives me an image. And, you know, um, you know, and so, I mean, and you, you, our faith is embodied in metaphor. I mean, somebody <laughs> was really quite, uh, and that's why I thought that this project uh, that Edward Short had, especially when he sent me the tip, this immense table of contents that goes from the middle, sort of the, the late Middle Ages all, way, all the way through the present, I said, yes, this is something we need in our Catholic mm-hmm. high school. Yeah, I'll have to have them on the show. Catholic colleges. And yeah. if I'm going to introduce it, I want to write an essay as good as anything I've written because it is so important that the next generation of, of, of Catholics uh, reclaim their artistic heritage. I mean, Catholics have been driven out of the arts world. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you know. We've been, t- we've been. Uh, I mean, it's really. Uh, there was something that was so ridiculous and so French that happened about two weeks ago. Ricardo Muti, you know, one of the greatest sure. conductors. I guess one of his sons, uh, you know, is you know is very religious and works at Lourdes, and so he decided that he was going to film. A video of Mozart's Ave Verum Corpus. You know, behold yes. the true body. It's a this great short um, communion hymn uh, that Mozart wrote. Some people think it's the most beautiful thing Mozart ever wrote. It's and so close. It's got to be close. Yeah, and he's attacked by the government that he's you know that this is an outrage and you know <laughs> at Lords. I mean, it belongs at Lords. Yeah, and it's, it's not just a tourist attraction. Yeah. And it's overtly sacred music by a composer writing it, <laughs> you know. Was, and so that that's how uh, now French the French, you know, you know, this has been going on since the revolution, sure. since the revolution. But, but it's not that way in the United States, and we have to, as Catholics, reclaim the imagination. We have to reclaim poetry. We have to reclaim music. Well, you also these, say reclaim the senses. Yeah, that's what I. Well, I, I, I said that, that Christianity has made it into the 21st century. Uh, you know, with its dogma intact, with its intellect strong, but it's lost its senses, all five of them, and uh, and uh, and I and I believe, you know, I believe that you know we've lost the ability to speak in language that that people can can receive as whole human beings, and that was always that was the, that was how Jesus taught. Uh, that's how you know. The, the faith prospered uh, in the late classical period, in the Middle Age, in the Renaissance. You know, was to was to communicate, was to recognize. I mean, here's the whole thing: is that you have to respect that part of a human being is their emotions. 
if I, you know, if I talk to somebody and I give them all the good ideas, but I'm blind to their emotional reactions, to their emotional needs, I am going to get nowhere with those people. You know, you exactly. have to, you know, uh, in the same way too, if you don't, uh, if you don't present things in a way that they can not just understand when they think about it, but that they immediately apprehend, I'm going to get nowhere with people. And you, if, if the church wants Dana, to do you recall the conversion of Pascal? No, tell me. I, when he converted, it was over like a three-hour period. He was confronted by some serious Jansenist Christ, uh, Catholics. But it was a three-hour uh, uh, experience of ecstasy and transcendence and so forth. And when he talked about it, he said, faith is a matter of the heart not of the mind. And this is from Pascal, one of the greatest mathematicians in history. Well, you know, there's a wonderful Cynthia Haven, uh, who's written a book about René Girard, also wrote this little monograph that Wise Blood Books published, and it simply talks about René Girard's uh, uh, conversion. He, uh, he was raised Catholic, but he never had any con- real connection to Catholicism. And he ends up being one of the great Catholic thinkers of the late 20th and early 21st century. And he was simply on a train from Philadelphia, and uh, he simply had a mystical experience. You know, and, it, and he wasn't thinking about these things. He wasn't expecting to do it, but he got, a, you know, he got on the train at Pagan, and he got off the train a few hours later. Not only as a Catholic, he says, but he he uh, understood everything that he needed to do for the rest of his life. Wow, I have to read that. Yeah, you know, and it's, and he goes, you know, <laughs> and he had to figure out why. But, you know, he, there was no doubt in his mind that it was authentic. And this is a great, a great intellectual mind. This is not like, you know, uh, somebody, an unreflective person has got there and something, something happens. But when God calls us, he calls all of us. He doesn't say, "Well, just bring your brain and leave leave the rest of you behind." You know, you you know, you are you are called in, in the fullness of your humanity. Uh, and so, Dana, like, you may you may recall that you once hosted a uh, book event for me as my memoir of my yes. conversion, American conversion, and I have a chapter in there about my experience uh, reading Aquinas and a red bird began to sing. And the words of Aquinas were taking up, and I had, I guess, a mystical experience, were taken up into the song of the Redbird. And at that moment, I knew I had to be Catholic. Yeah. And, and you, you know, this is a mystical experience. It's also a poetic experience, you know, where the image, the sound, the feeling, the emotion, the symbol talk to you. Um, and you talk about the musicality of poetry and how that plays a role. Well, in, in you know, when I um, studied poetry in college, I didn't get, you know, I, I got a lot of poetry in Latin in high school, but I didn't get, you know, much English. What they would do is they'd give you a poem and then have you analyze it. And they say, what does it mean? And you know, and what's the the irony that's going on, and you know, what are the symbols? And it, that was interesting, but it 
really had almost nothing to do with why I liked poems. You know, the reason that I liked poems was it was language, and, and this is so obvious, but most people have never heard it explained this way. It's language that casts a spell over you. Oh, yes. if, if you go back to the Latin word for poem, it is Carmen, like, you know, like, the, like the name Carmen. And, a, you know, Carmen uh, means a poem. It means a song. It means a prophecy. Uh, and, you know, it also means uh, a magic spell. And all of these things are encoded into poetry. And so uh, what I liked was when my mother would recite a poem to me. My mother was not a woman of much education, but she knew some poems by heart. When my mother recited poems to me uh, from memory, it, it suddenly I would go into a kind of a slight spells, you know, kind of sight hypnotic trance. I would listen to it, and the words would bring my imagination to a place that was, you know, different, you know, from my, in my everyday world. And uh, I didn't really understand, you know, what that meant, but I, I could experience it. And the thing that struck me odd is that in college and in graduate school at Stanford and at Harvard, no one ever spoke about this kind of hypnotic trance state. Uh, and that strikes me as, and, and, and in fact, they would start praising poems, which I think, you know, didn't even deliver that. They were just <laughs> intellectual things. And so, you know, I've, I've written a lot about that. But if you think about it, um, you know, a great uh, religious poem puts you into a kind of trance state, a kind of meditative an ex ecstatic state, state that is the sort of thing that you know you're really trying to um, achieve through prayer, you know, through meditation. And you know, we have these, uh, you know, there, you know, this, it's these great vehicles, you know, for, uh, you know, for our. Um, our spiritual life in poems that, you know, people don't, uh, you know, necessarily uh, make part of their, um, of their inner world, you know, so... And they're impoverished by that. To get poems is actually, I think, um, you know, a... Uh, is an anthology because you can just open it up, mm -hmm. you know, at any one page, and uh, you know it will, um, you know, open things, you know, up to you. It will, it will bring, you know. Dana, we're going to take a, a short break. I'm talking with Dana Joya about his recent article in First Things: Christianity and Poetry. I strongly recommend it. It will be the preface to a new anthology of Christian. Poems, and I'm sure I'll have uh, Mr. Short on the phone on, on the show when that comes out, but we'll be back in just a moment.
back with Dana Joya, and we're talking about Christianity and poetry. And Dana, in his essay for First Things, and one thing I, I noticed, Dana, that you also issue a kind of rallying call for the future of Christian poetry. Well, I do. I mean, um, a literary tradition is, you know, it can be memorialized. I mean, we get an, an anthology out of these are all the great poems that have been written. But it's even more important to keep the tradition growing, to keep the you know, to keep it alive and vital, to have people, <coughs> you know, write, writing out of uh, out of the experience that they have today, uh, you know, about you know about the perspective of you know, of a Christian uh, in the world. And so, as I've gotten older, I've become very concerned about helping the next generation. You know, because, you know, I'm not going to be around here forever. You know, deal. I don't know if anybody's broken it to you, but you ain't going to be around forever yeah. It's breaking slowly, and, but surely. And so we have to, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, support, nurture, train, toughen, uh, refine the next generation. That's one of the reasons why, you know, I, you know, created this Catholic Literary Imagination Conference at USC about you know, eight years ago that's gone on to Fordham and Loyola Chicago and it's going to be coming to the University of Dallas this fall because it's important to get hundreds of of Catholic writers together meeting each other, meeting publishers, meeting editors, uh, hearing each other's ideas and work because it forms a stronger, uh, more vital literary culture. Whereas what people told me the first time we did this at USC, you know, 400 people come from not just all over the country, but all over North America, Europe, even somebody from Australia, was that they were the only uh, public Catholic on their faculty. They were the only Catholic intellectual, uh, you know, that they knew. And it was, you know, very important for them suddenly to understand that they were part of a large, intelligent, energetic community. And each time we've done the conference, it's gotten bigger and bigger, Magazines have come out of it. Presses have come out of it. Book clubs have come out of it, and and so a lot of my energy goes into this. In fact, you know, about a little over a week ago, I was in Houston, Texas, uh, where the, for the first time ever, uh, the thirty-five or so people that have enrolled in the St. Thomas University of St. Thomas Masters of Fine Arts program got together. So we have nearly three dozen writers Wonderful. that are in a Catholic program. This is, in fact, there's a couple of Protestants there because they said they couldn't find a Protestant school that took you know, both faith and literature so seriously. And these people have come, they've come from all over the country, and you know, they spent their time together. James Matthew Wilson, Joshua Wren, Sarah Cortez helped guide them. And you, know, you could feel that these were lives being changed. These were writers who, you know, were no longer alone, but understood that they were part of a community. So, you know, we need academic programs, we need publishers, we need reviewers, you know, we need conferences. We need readers. We need whole schools, you know, teaching this. But we're starting uh, from from scratch almost, and we are building, think of this in 1960 terms, we are building a counter-culture the secular culture that surrounds us, and everything that you know, that, 
need to make a Catholic counterpart. Well, you know, the, one of the biggest problems is 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 that people don't have habits of reading poetry or volumes of poetry. I mean, they might take a stab at Shakespeare's sonnets or their favorite uh, Dunn or their favorite Herbert, etc. But in terms of modern and contemporary poets like you, uh, I, I don't, my understanding is there's not a big audience at present out there. Well, there isn't and uh, there isn't and there is. Let, uh, let me give you the facts about poetry. Uh, first of all, in the larger context, Americans are reading less than they ever did before. And in fact, we have a, a substantial portion of adult Americans who are illiterate, and uh, which is to say, they don't read at a basic level. Now, these are not, you know, uh, un- you know, poor unfortunates that arrived from the third world. Although uh, some of those people are there. I mean, we have native-born Americans who, you know, have the schooling is so poor and they've dropped out of it so early. So we have a larger crisis of literacy, and I'll be the first. Uh, you should bring Mark Bauerlein, you know, who, uh, who, you know, worked for me at the NEA and works at First Things. You know, Mark, is just, unfortunately, has become a scholar of the literary crisis. But within this diminishing, uh, you know, literary uh, sort of literacy landscape, poetry is growing. Poetry is now the fastest growing art form in the United States. People don't know this, but it's true. Um, you could, you, from the, any National Endowment for the Arts Arts Participation Survey, which is the largest survey in the world, uh, uh, it's been obvious for about 10, 15 years now, poetry has grown among every group uh, every racial group, every income group, every educational level, uh, both genders, uh, and every age group. Um, and in fact, among younger people, the audience in poetry has doubled over uh, the last 10 years. So there's something weird happening in our culture right now, which makes people respond more to poetry. And, and we're not talking about hip-hop here. We're talking about actual poetry. So we're in a moment where I think people... Because we've we've gone from a culture of reading silently on the page to a culture of talk and speech, and that's the original oral culture out of which poetry arose. And so there's a real opportunity right now, I think, to uh, to grow poetry, and uh, you know, and I think it, uh, Catholics have to, you know, in a sense, understand that this is an opportunity too. Uh, so. Do I have enough readers? Well, you know, my vanity says no. Uh, <laughs> but I do have a lot of readers, and I have a lot of people that write me and ask about my work. Um, but I'm less concerned about my own uh, fame than I am with the preserving and enlarging the human capacity to hear complex language and to hear poetic language. Because if we lose that, we impoverish the whole culture. But it does seem right now that for poets, not for novelists, not for playwrights, uh, not for historians, but for poets, it's a pretty good time. And oh. so, uh, you know, and, and 
I was California poet laureate. I went to all 58 counties of California, you know, almost all of which are rural. People don't think of that, but you know, these are small farm right. communities or mountain communities. And everywhere I went, I got a good audience. Everywhere I went, there were local people, you know, reading poetry and writing poetry. So I think, and this is belatedly the answer to your very sensible question, I think the problem is that we've lost our ability in the culture to educate people in poetry, to make them comfortable with poetry, to promote poetry, but nonetheless, they are hungry for it. Well, I know whenever, I mean, every now and then I break into poetry over the dinner table or someplace, or even the golf course, believe it or not. And people, you know, they're first are kind of like put taken aback, but then they end up smiling and, and liking it. I mean, they like, it's as if you've raised the temperature of the interaction you're in. Not a lot of people read poetry, although more than a few years ago, that almost everyone loves to hear a good poem well recited. You know, and, and, and I know the students sometimes when I'll recite a poem from memory or I'll read a poem, people want a copy of it. You know, it's right. like Henry Vaughn. Of course, you're one of the best poetry readers. You're one of the best poetry readers I've ever I alone sit lingering here. Their very memory is fair and bright, and my sad thoughts doth clear. It glows and glitters in my cloudy breast, like stars upon some gloomy grove, or those faint beams in which the hill is dressed after the sun's removed. You know what it goes on? People, people, they like that, and they like it because the poem takes them to a place that they recognize is important. And it uh, guides their experience there. And it puts them in touch with things about themselves, about the world, about existence that, you know, are not as easily, uh, that aren't easily accessible from other perspectives. I mean, you know, I mean you know, it's interesting. The most popular poem ever written, if you measure it in terms of what poem appears in poetry anthologies most consistently, You'd say, well, it's some easy poem, it's, you know, easy, reassuring, sentimental poem. No, it isn't. It's William Blake's The Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand dare I dare frame thy fearful symmetry? He would pronounce it symmetry back then. And it's this weird poem about a burning tiger. Uh, and this burning tiger has been produced in a blacksmith shop where it seems as if God has got this hammer and has got a bellows and has got a clasps and he creates this tiger out of, you know, this, uh, you know, this primal energy. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you know, uh, did the, uh, stop, you know, was, uh, so when did stop, uh, did the star, did, did, was it, did the star, uh, something when I worked at sea, uh, I'm forgetting the ending of it, um, uh, where the, the stars begin to weep because God's uh, work is so beautiful. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and then it said, did he who made the lamb make thee? Oh, yes. uh, you know, and it's this, nobody can explain this poem. It's this poem about divine mystery, uh, yes. which takes the strange thing of this burning 
predatory beast. Um, and yet it's this poem that people demand, you know, to have in a book uh, because they like, uh, uh, you, you, you know, the, you know, uh, because it's not an experience they get otherwise. So what people want from poetry is not sentimentality and easy ideas. They want beauty, glory, uh, mystery. Uh, they want nobility, too. Uh, let me ask you, I'm, I've been reading a lot of Walt Whitman the last few years, and I've been trying to read it aloud to myself. And I find it very hard to get his voice uh, in terms of, reading aloud, uh, talk to me a little, you mentioned Whitman, and of course he was a kind of pantheist, but he's certainly one of America's greatest poets. What do you think about Whitman? I have a very qualified and mixed opinion about Whitman. I mean, Whitman, they always say, you know, he's the greatest American poet, he's the one poet that had American spirit, you know, blah, 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 and it's all true. It's all true. But what Whitman did is just... You know, he's like a jazz pianist that just lets lets rip, and he's he's got inspiration for five minutes, and it just does t- you know ten minutes of of stuff that's just note spinning. And so, uh, I find Whitman most interesting in short excerpts. Yeah, he almost always goes that. on too long for my taste. Uh, he's repetitious. Are you saying uh, he needed an editor? He's bombastic. Yeah, but. There are moments, you know, when he, uh, um, you know, uh, he explodes with a kind of a vision, you know, and so it's, uh, he's a very peculiar, he's really a one-of-a-kind poet. I think part of the reason he's so popular is that any poet who reads Whitman says, gee, I can do that, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. you know, and, and many of them have, you know, so he's a poet that opens up possibilities. When you read John Donne, you, you say, gee, I can't do that. Right, that very good point. Or George Herbert. Yeah, or Herbert, or you know, you know, uh, and so you know, you have these, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, these these great technical masters. Where Whitman is, you know, he's you know, he's your camarado. To use this this word that he's invented, you know. Uh, Who? You know, well, that, uh, let me ask you this: Who do you look to as in terms of? In America, anyway, who are our best Christian poets, Catholic well, or otherwise? The, the Christian poetic tradition in America is very odd because you know you come you know this is where all the the Puritan dissenters come. So they come and you know they create uh, you know these small. Highly interior Protestant churches, which is to say, it's all about individual consciousness and individual uh, uh, relationship with the divine. And this is a powerful tradition. This is the tradition which fundamentally creates the U.S. Constitution. I mean, the U.S. the vision of the U.S. government is pretty much you know created by Congregationalists and uh, who understand the the that you can only base a society on the on the conscience of and the rights of an individual. In fact, where there seems to be some continual arguments in Washington <laughs> about precisely this. And so I don't find the early Puritan poetry very congenial. 
You know, it's it's you know, it's uh, this is not a culture which is a culture about beauty. It's a culture about uh, about piety, and then you get to the 19th century, and you have this this Protestant tradition fall apart because if you sort of say your your religious truth is whatever you and God decide together in private, uh, you know, you're going to create it's going to your you well, know the churches are going to fragment and fragment well, it leads and, to Whitman. It leads to what happened in American poetry, and yeah. for, you know, in American churches, but for poetry, it's the same thing. So you have the great uh, 19th century religious poets are people like Emerson and uh, Longfellow uh, who, uh, and Dickinson. Um, Longfellow and Emerson become Unitarians. Uh, Longfellow still believes in, in Jesus. To Emerson, Jesus is just another of the many great men of history. Right. You know, he's... You know, he's no better than Goethe, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and which I think is, uh, I think misses the point, uh, uh, yes. you, know, you know, you know, for me. Uh, and so um, the Longfellow, you know, understands that, you know, that Christ is a redeemer, but he doesn't quite, you know, he, he, he can't quite go, you know, and he's attracted by, by Catholicism, but he can't really go there. And then the other, you know, great poet is Dickinson. Dickinson is a Congregationalist, but she, in the Congregational Church, as an adult, you have to come and declare that you're joining the Church. Her father doesn't do it until he's in the Middle Age, and she's never able to do it. She's never able to come into the Congregation and say, you know, uh, you know, I believe in, you know, the, you know, the tenets of, you know, of Christianity. But she, she writes this, you know, poet, you know, this kind of, it's sort of pantheistic, de- or deistic poetry. And Jesus is in it, but you know he, you know, once again he's uh, he's a little better than Goethe in her mind, you know, mind. But he's not he's not really the redemptive savior. And so you don't really so you what you have, our nineteenth century poetry is largely you know the poetry of of the Unitarians, as it were, this kind of uh, in, and Whitman himself, you know, he's he's he himself is divine, and that's where American poetry does. We're all divine. Uh, you know, I, you know, I don't. That's not my belief. I believe we participate in divinity. You know, you know whereas, <clears> whereas in England, I don't think you're a god. You know, I don't think uh, I myself in England you have Hopkins. And so, the really interesting religious poetry in the United States begins for me, pretty much around World War II. Um, and you have, you know, a poet like Richard Wilbur, who is. It's just this magnificent, you know, poet of, of kind of of blessed consciousness. You know, he's a, you know, and he's, I think, one of the two or three greatest American poets of this generation. And he's a practicing Christian. And his poetry comes out of a Christian worldview. Uh, my teacher Robert Fitzgerald, you know, who didn't write very much, but his his religious poetry is very very beautiful. Thomas Merton. You know, who is primarily, a, you know, a theologian and a writer about the monastic tradition, but is a is a, you know a very fine poet. And you have people like Robert Lowell or Alan Tate or John Berryman who kind of drift in and out of Catholicism. I don't find them very satisfactory uh, religious poets. And so, for in America, uh, you know, our Christian tradition is, I think. You know, very odd because of the multiplicity and and the uh, instability of uh, American religious identity, which is why 
I think now is this great moment for American Catholic poets. You know, it's not as if we have to compete with Dante. You know that we, you know that we have to, you know, to, to compete with, you know, the, the great, you know, Gerard Manley Hopkins and people like this. You know, we're really competing, you know, uh, against uh, a very, you know, imperfect tradition uh, that's never really been fully articulated. So you know, and that's so. I mean, now some people get very mad when I say this because they, you know, they they like this poet or that poet. I'm not saying I don't like these other poets. But, you know, uh, Catholic poetry um, has always been a kind of, cur- you know, minor tradition in American letters. This, this you know, was, in my, you know, my grandmother was illiterate. You know, she came over here, she, did, she couldn't, you know, she couldn't write or sign her own name. And it took generations for these poor Catholic immigrants to come here, send their kids to college, to get the education, for us to enter literary life. We entered the novel with a bang. I mean, you've got these incredible, you know, uh, groups of Catholic novelists, you know, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, you know, people like this that, you know, are, uh, you know, even the, the, you know, the, the short-lived, uh, um, you know, you know, uh, John Kennedy Tool, you know, who wrote the Confederacy of Dunces, right? Master, comic masterpiece. Um, so, dare I suggest that we're, we are perhaps entering? the great phase of Catholic American poetry. Well, I I know you're doing all you can to encourage that. And uh, speaking of that, Dana, have you got any... I know you've got a book on Seneca coming out because we talked about it on a previous show, but do you have any volumes of poetry on the way? Yeah, I have a new book of poems coming out um, next February. Uh, which is called Meet Me at the Lighthouse, you know, which, uh, you know, we out in February and, um, you know, I'm just, I just got the proofs of it. So I'm very, I'm very proud of that. That's the, any, any one of your, uh, listeners who has, uh, seen any of these Psalms, that I, Psalms for Los Angeles that I've written, they will be in there. So it's, you know, it's a book that has some religious, uh, poetry, but, um, you know, it's, it's, like all of my books, it's about you know, it's about all kinds of things. And then I have this book on Seneca coming out, and then I'm trying to finish, um, you know, a book of essays, uh, with, you know, which is almost done. You know, because this is stuff that's been gathering for years. Uh, I've been doing a lot of musical work too. I have the uh, Sir James Macmillan, the British composer, and oh, I yes. have written a large choral piece that was originally going to be used to reopen. Christ Cathedral in Orange County. That's the, the you know, the Crystal right. Cathedral that Philip Johnson built, uh, which has been acquired by the Catholic, you know, it's the Diocese of Orange County. And uh, this is a work for soloist, chorus, and full orchestra. And so it's going to, so it'll be performed next year. You know, it was delayed because of the pandemic. So it's been a great pleasure to work with Macmillan, who's this great British Catholic composer. Dana, we've uh, we come to the end of our time together, and of course, I know we can keep well, going. Well, I just uh, uh, you know, what, you know, it's just you know, hope that your readers will look look for this this uh, what's, what's going to be called you know the the this you know this Saint Mary's book of Christian verse that Edward Short um, is bringing out this fall you know from um, Gracewing Publishers 
because it's a big event, I think. I think it's okay. It, well, we'll know, make sure that uh, we get them on the show and tout the book as much as we can. And uh, I want to thank you again for taking the time to be on Church and Culture, Dana. Well, I want to thank you for doing this show deal. I mean, this show is so important. You know, it's it's in so it's so unique in, in many ways. You know, you're doing great work. Well, I appreciate. It. I like hearing that, and so you're guaranteed another <laughs> slot on the show. <laughs> I wasn't giving you a compliment for that. I, but I do appreciate it. So, all you listeners, uh, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with another wonderful guest. <laughs> 